World Rare Disease Day, held on the last day of February each year, is an annual observance to raise awareness for the 400 million people affected by rare disease globally. World Rare Disease Day 2021 falls on February 28th this year. Visit globalgenes.org forward slash world hyphen rare hyphen disease hyphen day for more information on how you can help elevate the cause and shine a light on rare disease patients and caregivers around the world. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Singh grew up with a child's eye view of hospitals, operating rooms, and clinical trial sites. As someone with the rare and progressive neuromuscular disorder, spinal muscular atrophy type 2, Singh knew what it meant to be isolated and frightened by both as a patient and a clinical trial participant. Now as a student at Yale University with plans to pursue her interest in law and public policy and health, she has written Courageous Kala, and the clinical trial. We spoke to Singh about the surgeries and clinical trials she endured as a child, her new book, Courageous Kala, and her interest in humanizing medicine. Arya, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're going to talk about your book, Courageous Kala, which is intended for children participating in a clinical trial your own experience as a rare disease patient and clinical trial participant, and your greater goals of working to humanize medicine. Let's start with the book. How did it come about? Yeah, so, you know, it was something I'd always been kind of thinking about since I was a kid. I was born with a rare neuromuscular disorder called um, spinal muscular atrophy. And so growing up in the medical world, I'd always wished that I had this source of comfort and a way of understanding the medical world that I found myself in. Um, but I'd never actually gotten around to doing it, or I guess I couldn't find the courage to do it maybe at the same time. Um, But last spring, I was actually enrolled in a global health class at Yale, and the final assignment was to do something creative, and that was literally the prompt. Um, And so I kind of decided why not. Um, I'm majoring in history of science, medicine, and public health, and I'm minoring in education, um, and I hope to work in health policy specifically on drug development one day. And so this kind of felt like a good step in that direction that kind of combined all of the above and was maybe an impetus to help me kind of do something that I'd always thought about doing. Well, who exactly is the book intended for and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's for kids in clinical research. Um, Rare disease affects almost 30 million Americans. So that's a lot of kids. Um, And, you know, I think I was hoping that the book would help children understand that they're not alone and that, you know, there are things and processes in place to help keep them safe. Um, And I was hoping to give them kind of a vehicle um, with which to understand what it means to be in research in language that they can understand easily and kind of find comforting and relatable. So I think, you know, so much of clinical research seems unrelatable and daunting. You never really know what's going on to you. Um, You see these 100 page consent forms. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that this book is kind of going to help distill that for kids. But I also think that it's intended for the general public. I think 
the ethics surrounding research, um, like respect for autonomy or do no harm and justice are really global principles that we all try to live by or should live by. And so I think though not that many people are involved necessarily in clinical research, um, I think that bioethics is kind of booming right now in terms of interest and relevance with COVID and really just has applicability to all of our daily lives. So, yeah. You mentioned you have spinal muscular atrophy for listeners not familiar with the condition. What is it? How does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah, so it's a rare neuromuscular genetic disorder, and it causes essentially progressive and um, pervasive physical weakness. It's caused by a mutation in the survivor motor neuron, which is called SMN um, gene one. And so people with SMA essentially don't produce enough SMN, so their nerve cells can't properly work, and muscles start to wither away if SMA goes untreated. When were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed at 18 months in 2001, actually two days before my younger brother was born. And we've had a a number of innovative therapies come to market since then. What were your parents told at the time? What was the outlook for for a patient with this condition? Yeah, um, at the time, they were told that SMA was ultimately fatal and that no treatments were available and that it was untreatable. And um, all of that is true if it follows its natural history. So Um, my prognosis and a lot of, I mean, virtually every SMA patient's prognosis was not incredibly bright. We speak to many patient advocates, both patients and parents of patients, often with a lot of enthusiasm about clinical trials and medical advances. We don't often get a child's eye view into this world. Growing up, you underwent many surgeries and participated in a, a number of clinical trials Give us the the sense of the range of experiences you went through. Yeah, I think two kind of main things. One, I would say it's really confusing and scary to go through as a kid. Um, I've been in the operating room over 20 times, lots lots of which were kind of 12-hour surgeries. I missed 30% of every school year to be in clinical research or in the hospital with surgery or just going to doctor's appointments. And, you know, it's really jarring as a kid to wake up to kind of stars that would be there for forever and your body being completely change and prodded at all the time. And I think um, a moment that I really think about a lot is I remember this one time I woke up intubated and it was um, the first time that I'd been consciously intubated and I wasn't able to talk and I didn't know what was happening to me at all. And so I had to write everything down because I couldn't verbally communicate at the time and no one could read my handwriting. And I was kind of already always known as the kid with really good handwriting. And it was this moment of just, I was so confused as to what was going on and I had no way to express that frustration. Um, and so I think that that's kind of one of the pivotal moments that I think about in terms of like my life growing up in the medical world. But I think that at the same time, things that aren't and maybe shouldn't be normalized um, for kids become normalized. You know, like I got really used to going to 12 doctors a week and I would bring paintings or cookies to the phlebotomist that I was seeing that week. And I named all of my wheelchairs and I kind of memorized the jokes that my anesthesiologist would tell me as I would fall asleep because I'd heard it so many times. And I grew up saying that Columbia Hospital was my second home. And so I think you kind of have this interesting dichotomy of confusion and shock, but also you get used to it without knowing you're getting used to it, if that makes sense. And do you still name your wheelchairs? I don't. I grew out of that. I thought that maybe when I got to college, that pattern should stop. So just to clarify for listeners, you said you were you woke up and you were intubated. This is having a, a tube down, down your throat because you're unable to breathe on your own? 
Correct. Yeah. And for SMA patients, their lungs are, we're, our lungs are very weak. And so when you go through surgery, um, it's very frequent that you need to be intubated after because your lungs kind of shut down during um, the procedure itself. And when you woke up with this tube, how frightening is that for, uh, well, I would think for anyone, not just a child, but for a child. Yeah, I I was terrified, but I also had no idea what it was partially because I didn't know what intubation was um, when I was 10. But at the same, but at the same time, I also was so sedated that I kind of knew what was going on, but not really. And I think that that in itself was frustrating to me because I'm, I was a kid who always wanted to know everything that was happening to me and being medically induced to not do that, even though definitively for my own good was a very jarring experience. Um, But yeah, I think it was a lot of confusion and frustration and just wondering when it would be over. So I, I don't remember coming across that in Courageous Cala, but <laughs> what did you draw on from your experiences in, in writing that book? Yeah, I think um, the main thing I drew upon was kind of this dichotomy between feeling very normal and like all of my peers, but also really confused and scared, but not having a place where I felt that I could go to talk about that experience or learn about that experience. I think um I drew on a few, I guess, what I would call like big takeaways from growing up in research. I think one being you kind of learn to trust at a very young age because you have no choice. And so I kind of tried to channel the trust that I've um, put into medical professionals and my parents and my um, peers into the into writing this book and as inspiration to this book. But I think the biggest thing growing up with learned to struggle. I, I struggled, but I learned, I think, to balance and kind of reconcile these really complicated emotions of fear and hope and faith at a young age, you know, on one hand, you have immense gratitude for I received some of the best medical care in the world. And I'm so lucky to have had that. But at the same time, it was traumatic. At the same time, it was frustrating to not have what I thought was a normal life um, that few people could relate to. And so I kind of tried to encapsulate and channel all of those things together to create what's hopefully a simple um, retelling of that experience. I know you've talked about the the fear and isolation you felt as a child mm-hmm. these can be very powerful feelings what helped you deal with it back then yeah i mean honestly i think probably a plethora of things but in my mind the thing that i still think about the most is my parents um they they did everything they could and a lot of the times really successfully to make sure that despite all of the extra stuff going on that I grew up as a kid with kind of the same hobbies and thoughts and dreams as any other kid. And I think now that I'm older, I'm starting to appreciate the ways in which clinical research can be even more terrifying for parents and the child, given that they do know what's happening and they don't know if their child is going to be okay and they don't want to ever see their kid in pain. And, you know, having to sign those informed consent forms for me because they knew what I didn't and knowing you're kind of putting your kid in the spotlight and maybe in harm's way. I, I don't know if I'd be able to do that as a parent, but I'm grateful that they did. And the feelings of fear and hope that I think I had were only more amplified for them and their ability to kind of remain my rocks and pillars of comfort, reassurance and happiness, especially during those times, really just kept me so grounded. And I definitely don't know what I would have done um, had they not been kind of light posts along the way. In the book, Cal is going to participate in the clinical trial and her Father tells her there are four promises that doctors around the world make. Did your dad actually have this conversation with you? Um, no, not formally, but uh, my parents definitely tried to engage with me about 
these principles and how clinical research worked and what kept me safe by using analogies that I'd understand. And I think I mentioned this a little bit before, but as a kid, I hated when I didn't understand something. And so they knew that it was really important for me to understand the best I could, um, even if I couldn't necessarily read 100 page documents yet. Um, so the water lily one was an example that wasn't exactly about one of the principles, but it kind of introduces the idea of what a clinical trial is. This is referring to a, an experiment that was done during a science fair. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, the four promises have to do with issues of bioethics and informed consent. How challenging did you find putting that into terms that would be accessible to a child? Yeah, um, I think in writing this book, it was interesting for me because I actually realized that these principles are actually way more relatable and understandable than they appear when written at kind of such a high level. Um, I think that the principles taught in the book are really no different than what we try to instill in kids in school and what parents try to instill in kids every day. And so it really just came down to thinking of examples that any child would understand and what I would have understood when I was a kid. Um, I think you know, I have a younger sister and growing up a lot of the time, I am six years older than her. So I would try to explain to her like why I was at the hospital and why it was interesting to kind of have that flip. And so I was trying to remember what I would say to her. And I think that almost all of the principles and promises that I talked about are pretty much verbatim what I've told my younger sister at one point or another. What do you think a child who's going to participate in a clinical trial should understand about clinical trials? And and what would you want them to know? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing I'd want them to know is that um, they should know that they have every right to feel whatever they feel and that it's okay if these feelings conflict and are frustrating and frustrating and they don't always know what to do with them. I think what was weird for me was to kind of see these clinical trial processes so standardized and often somewhat void of emotion just because they are so regulated. And I think that that is the cornerstone of kind of what makes clinical trials safe. But I think at the same time, growing up is weird for me because I felt like so confused as to why I felt all these crazy emotions or what felt crazy at the time, but then everything around me was working as if it was every other day. And so I think that kids need to know that it's okay to feel all the things that they're feeling and it's perfectly normal. But I also think that that has to be kind of um, in conjunction with reminding kids that there are processes and people um, and documents and law in place to make sure that clinical research is doing good and doing all it can to hopefully make children like patients with SMA better and to keep them safe and protect them. And, um, you know, I think asking questions and being scared and um, feeling what you feel is totally okay and good. But I think also it's important to remember to trust the people taking care of them um, and that there are people who know and understand at the end of the day what they're going through, um, even when and if it doesn't always feel that way, because I know for me, it definitely didn't at times. And, and as a child, did you come across other children that were participating in the same clinical trials? Yeah, it was interesting because um, when I would go for dosing days and when I would go for visits for um, all the drugs that I've been a part of, I would see other patients kind of in their rooms um, or their operating room or um, their examination room. And it was interesting because I definitely had a few conversations with them. But I think at the same time, everyone's kind of in their own head a little bit at times. Like I, I don't think I necessarily was at a place where I was ready to have an open conversation about it. And so I felt it was interesting because you could kind of see quite literally other people going through it, but everyone was having their own very distinct um, experience with it and trying to make sense of it on their own. And so I think, you know, granted I was younger and I think now I would probably take more advantage of those opportunities. But um, yeah, I do regret kind of not jumping into that feeling of relatability more than I did. 
I'm curious if you had any sense of how other parents addressed their children's fears or anxieties over the clinical studies and whether they took similar approaches to your own parents or whether your parents were unique. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know as well as I wish I did. I think in casual conversations that I've had with other SMA patients and kind of seeing parents talk to their kids, even if through a glass wall, I think it's a lot of reassurance and hoping that your reassurance is going to be right in the end. And, you know, making sure your kid feels as safe as possible, even when you don't know if they will be okay. Um, And so I think that all parents to some degree try to do that. But I think my parents both worked actually on the development of the drugs that I was a part of. And so I think that for them, it was interesting because this was kind of their brainchild and their lifelong mission on the daily, um, on a daily basis. And so I think it was this interesting juxtaposition where they, they knew so much about the drugs at that point that I was taking that um, I think that kind of trying to take a step back was maybe a little bit of a different experience. But I think at the end of the day, this idea of reassuring your kid is kind of all the best that parents can do when their kid is scared. I, I mentioned SMA has been an area of some innovation in recent years with new therapies that have become available. Did you participate in any clinical trial of a of a drug that has since come to market? And, and are you benefiting in any way from any of these therapies? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was diagnosed, there were zero treatments and my future, as I said, did not look super bright. Um, and now there are three treatments and I was in clinical trials for two of the three. Um, and it's been incredible to kind of see that I'm able to start seeing my future dreams and hopes and fears come true in a way that wasn't previously predicted. Um, the drugs I'm on have kept me stable, which is already more than I could have asked for. I'm currently on Genitat's, um RISD. And for many people, including myself, you know, I think that the hardest part about SMA is not being able to keep up with the disease's progression. And so being able to keep that stability is kind of more than I would have already asked for. And then on top of that, becoming noticeably stronger on um, on the drug has only been a major, major plus. So yeah, I've definitely been lucky to kind of see the effects that drug development has had for patients. I know you've said you'd like to work to humanize medicine. Were the experiences you went through in retrospect, could they have been more humane? Um, I think to me, humanizing medicine just kind of means understanding that the effect medicine and disease has on a patient is holistic and beyond diagnosis and kind of the hospital itself. I think medicine is often separated and detached from the ways in which it impacts the entirety of someone's life. And I think that kind of only increases stigmatization and in a lot of ways prevents comprehensive care. And, you know, like I said, I think, no, I don't think that I've been, um, I don't think that anything I experienced was inhumane, but I think that like, for example, with the clinical research uh, example, you know, I think seeing everything be so standardized in every document a lot of the times feel the same exact way and be given to every single patient made me feel very like detached from the world in which I was finding myself in. And so I think kind of just working to show people and, you know, especially patients that medicine is so intersectional is, is something important and something that I want to commit my life to. Um, but yeah. Well, what would you like clinical investigators and sponsors to know or do differently to help humanize the way they work with patients? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, and I again, I know that this is only one experience, but clinical investigators and sponsors really have been some of the most empathetic and loyal and caring people I've ever met. And 
I think as long as they remember to keep acknowledging and appreciating the emotions that um, children often feel and make space for children to ask questions and have conversations with their families, I really do think that that's all they can and should need to do. The book is Courageous Kala. Yeah. All of the proceeds for the book are going to support the Spinal Muscular Atrophy Foundation. Where can people get the book? Yeah, so they can get it on Amazon um, or indirectly through my website, which is CourageousCala.com. Ara Singh, patient advocate, author, and Yale student. Ara, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.